reality and the fact, giving an account that you are worthy to be praised and worshipped by all things, and that there is coming a day in which all things will proclaim your greatness and your excellency. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would raise our affections for you. Wherever it is that we are in life, as believers, we go through many different seasons, some very short, some very long, some very difficult, some very joyous. I mean, we, Lord, we desire that throughout all of them, you would have our hearts, that our affections would be raised towards you as we look to you and we behold you and we're, and we're ministered to you by the truthfulness of your word. There's this battle that every single believer is engaged in. And we need to be able to know, Lord, how, not just like what to do and how to live, but that the believer can be oriented towards you and truly rejoice always, always to have a heart of joy, always to be, have a, to be able to have a song to sing to you. So Lord, we pray today that you would help us open up our eyes to behold wonderful things within your word for your glory and the exaltation of the redemptive work of Christ and for our good, our growth, our transformation to be like Christ. We pray that you would do that this morning in us. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 7 is where we will be this morning, so you can turn there. We're going to be in 7, verses 13 through 25 this morning. This is a passage that um, has been highly debated and um, talked about all throughout church history, and so I'm obviously going to give you where I fall on this text and um, then try to give a, a biblical exposition as to why I fall where I do on the text, and then try to encourage us um, in our walk, in our life as believers as we attempt to live out this text. A couple months ago, actually probably it's closer to about a year ago, um, I became privy of this Latin phrase, called Theologia Viatorum. And if you, you might be able to figure out what the first word is, Theologia, uh, theology. Viatorum is the word, the Latin word for pilgrim. And so it was a term that many of the early church um, fathers and reformed, reformed author, orthodox would use to describe the Christian life, a pilgrim's theology. As a believer, we all need a good pilgrim theology. You don't just need a pilgrim theology. You need a good pilgrim's theology. If you're going to live the way that, that, that God wants us to live, calls us to live, is equipping us to live, encouraging us to live, not just outwardly, like with the things that we do and how we spend our money and the things that we watch and how we speak to people and stuff like that, but inwardly as well. You live life as a pilgrim. You need a good pilgrim theology to live life biblically, inwardly, um, loving the right things, dreaming about the right things, desiring the right things. You know, what we would talk about and what I talk about often is in cultivating the right affections for God, for his kingdom, for his, for his bride, his church, for things of, of him. We need a good pilgrim theology to help us walk and live outwardly and inwardly the way that God calls us to live and wants us to live. I've been a believer long enough to see, um, you know, worldviews are not fixed ideas. People's worldviews, they change all the time, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. You see people who had faithfully served 
for a long time within the body fall away. You see the failing grow strong. You see the wayward come home. And you see the straight go sideways. How does this happen? How does it happen in the life of a believer where we are so convinced and fixed of a particular worldview, namely like the pursuit of the glory of God and my conformity into the image of his son is the best possible thing that could happen to me? How do you go from that to drifting and and wandering far away to where now you no longer think of God, you no longer value the scriptures, and the idea of coming to church is like a foreign concept. How do you get there? How does that happen? How do people, I know know I'm talking to people in this room that are scratching their head, wondering in the lives of their family members and their friends, "You you claim to be a believer. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Why are you making these decisions? You, you know that these things are wrong. And not only do you know they're wrong, you're asking God to bless it. Don't you know that's not how this works? See, we need a way of consistently looking at life and thinking about life as a believer to, to be able to, to not just endure and not just persevere, but to grow and to bear fruit through every season of life that God ordains for us. Difficulty, hardship, sorrow, loss, grief, confusion, joy, peace, rest, comfort. We need a good pilgrim theology to walk us through, and I believe that that's what it is that we see in our text today. The pilgrim, we need to remember, you know, we, we, last week in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, we looked at the role of the law, and it's, we saw that it's good for us. Yes, it exposes our sin, it excites our sin, but it's, it's a good thing that the law has given to us. We need to be able to use it rightly and understand it. And today we're going to see, we're going to begin with speaking about and looking at, again, the role of the law and how that transitions into um, this, this battle that the believer is engaged in as we seek to live a life honoring to the Lord, which will ultimately break into, in Romans chapter 8, the necessity of the work of the Spirit in order to really be able to, to do that, to live the way that God wants us to live but I don't want us to forget, as we're looking at the law, we're looking at this battle with sin, you know, which can be very difficult, which we'll see today. I don't want us to forget what it is that we've already seen in the book of Romans. One, one of the things that needs to be said about a pilgrim theology is, honestly, a pilgrim theology should be entirely optimistic. Not because life is easy, and not because life is good and you're always getting what, you're, what you want, but because God really does rule. And he really does reign. And he really is always good. And he really is always wise and powerful and sovereign over all things. That is where the Christian optimism comes from. Not because we look around and everything is great and we're getting what we want and life is smooth and easy, but because God rules and reigns and that can never change. Even in the midst of the difficulty that we face, God is is infinitely good trustworthy, wise, and sovereign. And we want to remember that. What he has declared for us, we're justified. We are righteous. We are forgiven people. you got to hold on to that stuff when you're you're really going through the grinder and you're really struggling trying to make sense out of what it is you're experiencing and where, where you are in life. He has firmly made these divine declarations that do not change based upon your circumstances. They are firm, they are true. The, the pilgrim has to know these things in order to then be able to bear fruit and grow and still wanna glorify God and still pursue him and his kingdom even when your life is falling apart, which it does at times. And guess what? God's the one that does it for your good and for his glory. 
So Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, I want to read through it. I want us to draw our eyes to a few things in particular from the text that I pray are, are truly helpful for us and obviously, of course, honoring to the Lord too. So Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that whenever I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You've probably been able to, already been able to figure it out and pick it up by now that I come from the perspective of Romans 7, 13 through 25, describing the life of the Christian that is still beset with their fallen nature and is struggling with that fallenness, that corruption that still lingers. It is absolutely true. And I think this is what's so, you know, so amazing, but yet so at times, I think, perplexing about the Christian life is that we have these like wonderfully true divine declarations made of us. You're completely forgiven because it, it, the debt has been paid. You are justified. You are righteous. But then we come to parts like this, and it seems to like undo all of that. No, 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 no. It's because this is what the life of the believer like really feels like. We really experience in real space and time. The reason why he front-loaded with the book of Romans the way that he did, so that we would like be holding on to these things. Like sometimes in the midst of difficulty, you just need something to cling to. You need the anchor. You need that rock of which you're just like weathering the storm and clinging and crying out, Lord, like just, just please don't let go of me. And, and those are those doctrinal truths, these divine declarations that he has made to us that are true for us. And then as we go through the difficulty of the Christian life, we know those things to be true. That's what we're holding on to as the storms come. And man, can they come? And do they come sometimes fiercely and tenaciously in our lives? But I want us to notice three things in particular this morning from the book of Romans 7, 13 through 25. Again, I want us to be reminded of the good, the goodness of the law of God, I want us to see the sinfulness of sin and the fall. And then I want us to see the hope and the assurance that we have in Christ. At, at the end of the text, it's not it, what we see is that Paul's hope and our hope, the, the hope and the assurance and the joy in the believer is not fixed upon your ability to be victorious over your sin. It's not about escaping like the hardship of life. It's not about getting to this place of the Christian life where, oh, everything is zen and there's nothing but good vibes and all of us, you know, good all the time. The hope and the assurance of the believer is not, really has nothing to do with you at all. It has to do with the work of Christ. And that's where we end up, the hope 
the assurance is not that I'm out of the battle. The battle's good. Stay in the battle. It's a good thing. It's not about being out of the battle. It's not about life being easy. It's not about me finally putting to death this sin that I'm fighting so much against. Fight against it and seek to put it to sin. But guess what? There's no guarantee that it's going to die. It may be the very thing God is using in your life to create dependence upon him. So your hope isn't in that. Your assurance aren't in any of those things. Your, your hope and your assurance are fixed upon Christ, who he is for you and what he's done on your behalf. Now, that's point three, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So let's work our way there. Point number one, the good use of the law. This is, again, being reminded largely of what it is that we saw last week. Verse 13, that which is good, the law, then bring death to me. So, so did the law bring death to me? And the answer, obviously, right away is by no means. It wasn't law that brought death to me. The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. The commandment are those things for us. It was sin. The law is not the bad guy. Sin is the bad guy. This is what we've seen all throughout the book of Romans. This is what we know to be true for us as believers. It was sin producing death in me. Right? We saw this earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death and sin are they're, they're inseparable from one another. So did the law bring death? No, the law didn't bring death. Sin was producing death in me through what is good. The law was just the tool through which sin was working to expose itself and to excite itself by which, you know, by the way, was a part of God's good sovereign plan for us as well, that sin would not remain, you know, inconspicuous and hidden. God divinely ordained that the, the wickedness and the evilness of sin would be exposed by giving of the law. When he gives the law, <clears throat> sin's excited, and it can't help but come out and expose itself. It's doing what God is wanting it to do. God is sovereign even over sin, even over Satan, over all activity. God is sovereign over all of it. And this is what the law does, two things that our text tells us, that sin might be shown to be sin, that we might be able to see sin for what it is and to identify the sin. I tell you what, I would much rather come upon a rattlesnake that's lying in the path that's rattling its rattle than one that's not. Sin like makes the rattlesnake expose itself until I go, okay. I'm not going that way. Not only that, not only does it expose sin to be sin, but through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, exceedingly sinful. You know what the law does? It doesn't just tell you this is, this is just, it's not a good idea. This thing, this thing, sin, not ideal. You should probably avoid it. No, this, that's not what the law does. The law exposes it for it being the most wicked, evil thing that there is. Ralph Venning, Puritan, wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. And if you're familiar with the Puritans, you know how they write. I mean, this book is this thick. And all he's talking about is the sinfulness of sin. Because there's so much to be said about the wickedness, the grossness the heinousness, the danger that is in sin. And the law reveals how exceedingly and excessively sinful sin is. It is not something to be toyed around with, tinkered with, procked, you know, or I mean prodded or poked. Oh, what's it going to do next? Sin is something that the believer is called to put to death because it is the most wicked murderous, vile, gross creature that there is. And it's all around. And its desires lie within. 
And this is why we need the law. I mean, one of the things I think about is that do you even see sin that way? I mean, do we even see sin for being exceedingly sinful? Not in, I'm not talking about the sins in other people. I'm talking about the sin within you and me. Do I see the sin that is within me and do I have a, a vile hatred and, towards it because of, of its exceedingly and excessive grossness and sinfulness? Right, we're so easy. Oh, I, I hate the fact that so-and-so does this. And we lament the sinfulness of other people, and yet we so easily brush over our own, justify it, excuse it. I was tired. I was having a long day. Sorry. Would you forgive me? Yeah. Sounds like you're really sorry. Sounds like you really understand the sinfulness of your sin. That's what the law does. This is the reason why we cannot um, get away from the law or avoid the law. And that's the reason why, guess what? The law runs through all the pages of Scripture from beginning to end to continue to expose and excite your sinfulness that you might turn from it. And that's why he calls the law spiritual in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Why? Because it's, number one, it's spiritually given, it's spiritual in intent, it's spiritual in its pr product. It's, it's producing spiritual, it's exciting a spiritual reality, it's exposing a spiritual reality. It's working in your life in a spiritual way to bring about spiritual insight that we might turn from it and turn to the Lord and see true spiritual change. So not only does the pilgrim need a good theology regarding the law of God, but as we've already mentioned, the law and its relationship to sin, the good, uh, a good pilgrim theology has an accurate view of the sinfulness of sin and the fall, which is our second point. The sinfulness of sin and the fall. We see this in verse 14b, through verse 20. But I, contrary to the spiritualness of the law, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. The emphasis on the spiritual nature of man takes priority here. And really the rest of the text is dominated by this spiritual reality, the spiritual war that takes place within the life of the believer. And he, and he describes himself as being one who's of the flesh. Literally, I'm, I'm still fleshy. It's an adjective that he uses there. And it's the only time the adjectives used in the whole book of Romans. It's as if to say, look, I'm still fleshy. I still have corruption. My corrupt and fallen nature is still at work in me. It's not, he, he says I'm of the flesh. He doesn't say, see, he'll use the phrase, in the flesh, in chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, talking about a non-believer. And then he'll go on in chapter 8, verse 8. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's a difference between of the flesh and being in the the flesh. To be in the flesh means that you're still, uh, you're still under the old master. You're still, you're, you're, you're in Adam, as we see, right? I, I, I tried to stress the point at the, when we got there in chapter 5, these two realities be, of either being Adam or in Christ are important to grasp because they carry through even into chapter 7 here. Those who are in the flesh are still in Adam, but he's saying, I'm of the flesh. I still have this fleshiness about me as a believer he would actually describe the church in Corinth in the same exact way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to how he describes the believers there. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as 
infants in Christ. To be of the flesh is to be a believer, but to be an infant, an immature one. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulos, are you not being merely human? Isn't this, yes, church in Corinth, y'all got some major problems. You guys got issues, for sure. That's the reason why he's writing the letter, to help them. He loves them. He, he, he loves the believer that is of the flesh, an immature Christian, a church that is struggling with things that are behaving in a human, worldly way of thinking and evaluating life. Oh, I, Paul, man, that's my dude. Paul, Apollos, he's way better. We do the same thing today, right? Oh, MacArthur, he's my guy. Love it. MacArthur? I'm talking about Sproul, dude. No, both of you guys are crazy, man. It's all about Spurgeon. I mean, we, it's okay to, to be ministered to people that are gifted as preachers and teachers, but don't put them on a pedestal. I don't think any of them would, none of them would even want you or I to be doing that. You know what that is? It's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of fleshiness. To exalt anybody or anything over Christ is just, it's silly. It's how he dresses the, the, the church in Corinth. And it's how he talks about his fleshy nature. We can hear the lament of his fallenness that lingers even after as Christ has bought him. We see this in verses 15 through 20. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. These are the things I do. Look, there, there's no hating. There's no, if you're not a believer, you're not even thinking or speaking this way. There's no, oh, like, I, 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 I hate these things, but I do them. And the things that I really do want to do, I don't do those things. The believer is the one that's caught in this struggle, this turmoil, I don't understand my actions. I gotta tell you, dude, I'm there. Sometimes I'm like, earth to Nick, hello. What are you, why did you do that? Why did you say that? It was like you just got poked and bleh. What came out of me was my fleshiness, my corruption. It, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that happens to you guys as well. I do the things I don't understand. What I do, I, I don't do what I want. I do the very things that I hate. Like, I hate those things that I was ashamed of that I, at one point, that was, that was bearing fruit for death, as we saw earlier in chapter 7 and later in chapter 6. Things that I'm ashamed of. What? I still do those things. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree, what? With the law, that it's good. Why? Because it's showing me, it's still showing me, oh, bro, you got a ways to go. How long have you been walking with the Lord? 20-some years? Who do you think you are? Do you not know that there is still this fleshiness about you? Have you forgotten? Oh, why don't you go ask your wife? Why don't you go ask your kids? They'll remind you because they see. We do such a good job. We come to church. We all got our smiles on. And I'm not saying that any of that stuff is fake or any of it's bad. But are we, are we really being like honest with ourselves in the struggles that we have? Confess your sins to one another. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us to do? We still struggle with this fleshiness, our corruption, our nature. And I agree with the law that it's good. 
because it's continuing to tell me, you're, you're, you're not perfect. You're not righteous in and of yourself. The law continues to expose me. And that's the reason why I should embrace it and read it. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Now, what I want to say is this, is that this does not, he, he's talking about these competing affections and desires that he has within. There's this, there's this part of him that's been redeemed, wants to do what's right. There's the part of him that's still fallen and fleshy and corrupted, not, wants to do what is not right. And that he identifies as being the sin that dwells within him. It's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. He'll also speak, though, conversely of the opposite, actually, in the text that Joe read for us this morning in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So in one sense, he's saying the good part of me isn't even me. It's Christ. The bad part of me is not even me. It's sin. But yet, it's not as if I'm not involved. Both of those things, Christ in me and my fleshiness within me, are still me. And I'm called to be engaged in the battle and to be fighting against these things that would war against one another. And he'll qualify it. So, so it, now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in, in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me in, that is in my flesh. So he qualifies. Who's, who's the me that I'm talking about? I'm talking about the part of me that's the fleshiness of me, the corrupted me, the fallenness of me is still active. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Not in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right. The regenerated Nick. I do desire to do what's right. I do. But I don't have the ability to carry it out not in my flesh, but I do, how? What, that's the point of what he'll go on to talk about in Romans 8, by the work of the Spirit. I can do what I now want to do, not on my own. I'm telling you, brother and sister, if you think that you are going to pull your bootstraps up and you're going to tighten your belt and you're going to get to work and start doing these things on your own and in your own power, in your corruption still and in your fleshiness, failure is in your future. Walking by the Spirit. You know what's interesting to the book of Romans? He hasn't even, he hasn't even like really talked much about the Holy Spirit yet. Like the third member of the Trinity, the indispensable um, person of the Godhead that indwells the believer to live this way. But we'll get there, Lord willing, next week as we talk about the role of the Spirit in our lives. But I have the desire to do good, not from the perspective of my flesh. I can do nothing good. Um, I do not, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is verse 19. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So it reminds me of what Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you cannot put sin to death. Apart from me, you cannot fulfill the law. Apart from me, you cannot live a righteous life. In your flesh, you can do nothing. You will act and respond according to the sinfulness of sin and your fallen nature. The question is, is are you, in what ways are you okay with living that way? What ways have you made accommodations for sinful behavior, sinful thinking in your own life? What, what ways have you justified it? I think of, you know, one particular example from the Old Testament you know, when Saul spares King Agag, they fight against the Amalekites, and the, the command of the people of God is, you spare no one and nothing. All of it. Wipe it clean. And so Saul goes into battle, right, and defeats the Amalekites. God gives him victory, but he saves, he, he preserves King Agag. 
and some of the sheep and the oxen and things like that. Samuel comes into camp and he's like, wait, I'm hearing something. I'm hearing the sounds of animals that are still alive. Surely Saul did what I told him to do. Samuel goes, he finds not only are some of the livestock and the animals still alive, King Agag is still alive. And he says, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ear? And what is this dude still doing here? So Samuel summons Agag to him, and Agag thinks, well, surely the wrath has passed from before me by now. And what does Samuel do? Hacks him to pieces. There will be no sin within the camp. There will be no foreigner among the people of God. And he wipes it all clean. It's this picture of how the believer should view sin in their own life. In what ways have you made accommodations for the enemy in the camp? And I, I'm, not ta I'm talking about myself. I've said this lots of times. Who is the first person that hears the sermon? Me. And I'm thinking to myself, Nick, in what way? Where's Agag? Is he still around? Man, I take the sword of the Spirit and hack that dude to pieces. Is that how you feel about your sin? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to be, ask a genuine question. Is that how I feel about my sin? Yeah, I'm in the battle. I, I can't say, oh, it's my flesh. It's, a, it's not really me. It's the sin living within me. Yes, it is you. And put it to death. And are you even like aware? Are we even aware? Are, oh, okay, let me ask you this. Are you even open to being told by another loving brother or sister in Christ where you're sinning? For them to go, here's the sword. You got something to do. You don't know me. You don't, don't judge, no one can judge me, right? Do you hate your sins so much that you are actually open to the loving ministry, correction, admonishment, rebuke, however you want to put it, in whatever form it comes, by a loving brother or sister of Christ is saying, you need to take care of this. There's another interesting story, I don't have time to tell it now, but in Numbers 25, if you're familiar with Phineas and his zeal for the Lord, oh, that's a great one too. Got to read that, Numbers 25. But are we aware, a good pilgrim has a, a good theology regarding their sinful, the sinfulness of their sin, their fallen nature that continues to remain, but also, thirdly, lastly, the hope and the assurance of the deliverance in Christ. We see this in verses 21 through 25. I find it to be a law that I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I believe he's talking about law here in the sense of I just find this to be a spiritual truth and principle. This is just the way that life is for the believer. Man, you, you gotta like, you just gotta settle in and know that this world is not your home. You need a good pilgrim theology. I find this to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There's, there's, they're, they're competitors. There's no getting away from it. For I delight in the law of God in my intervening. You see how he continues to re return back to the, the law? The law, right? The law is good and holy and righteous, verse 12. The law is spiritual, verse 14. I agree with the law that it's good, verse 16. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. Do you delight in that which exposes your weaknesses? Your sin. Because I hope you do because it's meant to lead you away from you and to Christ. The believer has this, this, this incredibly rich 
constant refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I rejoice in law because he's constantly reminding me, go back, go back to Christ. Look to him, rejoice in him. We would be like David would say in Psalm 119.20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I want your law. May I never go one step without your law being in front of me, exposing me to me and my weaknesses and my sinfulness. I think of the way that the Heidelberg Catechism put it. Heidelberg Catechism, question 115. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments still so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? Answer. First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. I rejoice in the law. I love the law because it's helping prepare me for eternity. It, it, it's, it's, it is recalibrating my affections, if you will, to where they need to be upon him, upon things of him. But he says, I, you know, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? He's talking about the part of him, the, the immaterial aspect of him that is the regenerated him. But then he's talking about, but I see in, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So in my inner being, the law of my mind, these two things are spoken of as being synonymous in here. My inner being, my mind, the regenerated, immaterial inner aspect of me, and it's, and it, um, it's waging war. The, the, another law is waging war against the law of my mind, the law of my inner being. And it's making me captive. It's seeking to capture me, to subdue me to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is, remember, this is what um, we talked about in chapter 6, verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. You can't go back to being under the old master. You can't go back to being in Adam if you're in Christ. It will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. But what did he say before that? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You can never go back to being in Adam, but sin will still seek to reign in your life and ruin you. And that's the war that he's talking about in 7, 22 and 23. It's this constant aggressive pressure from my fallenness and my corruption to make me captive. It, want, it, seeks, it seeks to reign in me, to captivate my thoughts, my desires, my actions, my words. Sin is, it's aggressive. And it's sneaky. We used to tell kids when we were doing youth ministry all the time, Satan doesn't tempt you with broccoli. He knows you don't like it. He's going to tempt you with something that you want, that appeals to the fleshy, corrupt aspect of you. Ice cream, brownies. Pick your poison. See, in my member, this, this war being waged. It cannot have dominion, but it is seeking to reign. And then he comes to the end here. Where's my hope? Victory over sin in my life. Putting everything to death. Being like Christ. Those are, those are, those are good things. We should be pursuing those things. But that's not where his hope and his assurance is. His hope and his assurance is based upon what Christ has already done and who he already is in Paul's life and these decrees that he's made. 
you're forgiven. You're righteous. He'll get in, in chapter eight, right? Adopted. Beloved sons and daughters. Roman, or 1 John chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love that God has given to us that we should be called children of God, and we are. That's, that's, the, that's the, the mind blow for the believer is like, I, I, I do things that I don't want to do. There's this competition, and yet God still, every day, still speaks so graciously and kindly to me. His mercies are really new every day. Oh, yes, and they never went anywhere. You just went off to sleepy land. But he never sleeps, and he remains consistent, and he pours out his saving grace upon his children consistently. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? You, you see where he puts himself in a position of need? Who's going to deliver me? I can't do this. I, I can't do what you want me to do. Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Guys, he's our Lord. He's king, victorious. He's already won. Thanks be to him because he is the Lord. He's already conquered death, defeated sin, all of that on our behalf. So then, so then this is a lot for the believer. I myself serve the law of God with my mind in the, in the regenerated inner man of me, but in my flesh, the fleshiness, the corruptionness of me, I still serve the law of sin. And they're always gonna be at war with one another. But my hope is not in the deliverance from the war. My hope is in the one who has already won the war in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think of a couple things that I'm reminded of from this text. War is constant. For the believer, the war is constant. Worship is hard. Weakness is being created in my life. And my will is being transformed to be like his. The war is constant for the believer. You need a good pilgrim theology. The war is constant. Pilgrims know that worship is going to be difficult. Pilgrims know that weakness is being exposed and created in their life. And that's good. Because in our weakness, he's strong. And our wills are being transformed. As a, as a pilgrim, you should be able to say more and more, yeah, I want to do what's right. I desire to do what's right. I think about the importance of not taking lightly the fact that we're in the battle. Make no accommodations for sin. See how failing to do so will cause drift and captivity. Even the most mature and seasoned believer must always beware. I also think of the fact that this, for the struggling heart, the struggling sinner that is redeemed by Christ needs to take heart and see how their struggle with their fallenness magnifies, continues to magnify God's grace in their lives and that, and that he helps us. We approach his throne of grace, Hebrews 4, sympathetic and faithful high priest. We approach his throne of grace to find grace to help us in our time of need. So if you're struggling, struggle on. Find someone to struggle with you. We're not, we don't live this Christian life alone. Find help with your struggle, but, but rejoice in the grace of God that's still expressed and poured out into your life. And lastly, remember Christ. He is the object of our faith. As such, he saves, not the strength of your faith, not the strength of your goodness, not the strength of your, your fight. That's not where your salvation lies. Your salvation lies in Christ. He's the object of your faith. And that can never be 
forgotten. And that's what we take with us as we approach the communion table. This is the time for us to look to the object of our faith, the one who has delivered and will still continue to deliver and will ultimately deliver us. I come to the table in some ways saying like, Paul, oh wretched man that I am. But in my wretchedness, his, his, his righteousness beams and shines all the brighter. And when I see it and then I know it's for me, oh, I worship. I rejoice. And that's what the communion table is about. This is the time of, of reflection, inspection, confession, but rejoicing as well, knowing that we have the assurance of the pardon that he has won and, and worked for on our behalf. So if you're visiting here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, by faith alone, we invite you to partake of this communion time with us. But if you don't know him that way and if you're still leaning upon any of your own goodness, any of your own merit, any of your own strength, any of your own ability, let the elements just remain. Don't partake. But to think about the foolishness of standing upon your own goodness and righteousness and, and hear the invitation of him to receive his righteousness. So the communion elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those, return back to your seat for some time of prayer, meditation, and we'll partake of communion together shortly.